Father, we have sung of you. We have sung of the, the glories of, of Jesus. Hallelujah. You reign, O oh Jesus. God, I, I couldn't get up here and, and preach every week if I wasn't convinced, O oh Lord, that you are the, the king of the universe, the one whose spirit rolls and moves. God, blows as you will. And so, Lord, I pray that you would blow into our hearts as we God, dig into this somewhat obscure, often neglected portion of Scripture which doesn't really even apply to us directly, and yet it is your word. It was written to your people, and so, Father, would pray that you'd take this truth here in Leviticus 11 and, and apply it to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the past uh, month and a half or so, um, my wife and I have been on a diet, and uh, we have been doing what I'm calling Weight Watchers on the Cheap. Now, uh, some of you maybe know what Weight Watchers is. Uh, I know that a couple families here really persuaded us uh, to do so, but the, the, this, this diet doesn't uh, focus on what you can eat, what you can't eat, but more on how much you can eat assigning various point values to what kind of foods are candies and ice cream. Those are like astronomically high points and breads and carbohydrates and potatoes and starches. Those are high, but milk and eggs and meat are lower and fruits and vegetables are free. And based upon your age and sex and height and weight, you can basically eat so many points a day and then there's some buffer every week you can do that. But that's the idea is that you record everything you eat, you write down your points and you watch your weight, your, your weight watchers. And in general, a balanced diet and moderation, um, my wife and I have been doing well at this. Been helpful. I've been surprised at how much I used to eat compared to how much I need. And uh, it's been been helpful for us. Uh, we did Weight Watchers on the cheap. What that means is we've talked to people who've been in Weight Watchers, so we get their deal. And we bought a $4 app for our iPod Touches. And so we, we use that mutual accountability. It's been, it's been helpful. And our children are tired of us talking about points we're having. Are you not? <laughs> Stephanie's like, will you stop talking about points? But it's been good for us just to uh, see what we're, we're eating and... Um, but I'm not the only one. Uh, we're not the only family who's done diets. I know that there are several of you who've done Trim Healthy Mama Diet. I'm not sure exactly who that is. Um, you've lost many pounds, and I commend you for that. The philosophy of this is a little bit different. What it says is that, as uh, best I can tell, is that carbohydrates and fats are to be keep, kept separate because they're fuels. And if you have both of them, then one will be used as fuel and the other will be used to fat. So what you do is you take these and you eat either carbohydrates and protein or fat and protein. Um, I hope I'm, I'm getting this right. You stay away from sugar of all forms and you lose weight and feel better. Some of you could stand up and give a testimony of, of this diet that, that you're on. Um, in fact, there are many other diets that people have used as well. Okay, I've, I've got like 25 of them listed. I'll just kind of give you a, a, a sampling of these. The, the South Beach diet, lean protein, low fat. Diary, good carbs, whole grain vegetables and fruits, the idea of that diet. You've got the zone diet, 30% calories, 30% carbohydrates, 30%, I'm sorry, 30% um, protein, 30% fat, 40% carbohydrates. Just a different philosophy. The Atkins diet avoids all food with sugar, refined flour and high protein foods such as right oils and bacon and steaks and stuff. The paleo diet, I like this one. 
go back to the caveman days when they lived in caves, eat only natural foods like fish and meats and fruit and veggies and nuts and get lots of exercise because you got to hunt down all of your animals or what you got to you got to do or the uh, the raw food diet it says don't heat your food above 118 degrees Fahrenheit because heating it up uh, destroys breaks down the food's nutritional benefit the biggest loser diet healthy foods and lots and lots and lots of exercise Jenny Craig or Nutrisystem, right? They provide you with these meals, all the set calories, and they're they're there. They're ready to to sell you this, and then you eat it, and you eat eat whatever you do. And there's there's lots more. The Slim Fast Diet, they'll sell you their shakes and their meal bars. The Fat Belly Diet, right? Some of us, you want to get a uh, flat belly? Flat belly, not fat belly diet. It's a flat belly diet. Fat belly diet's pretty easy, right? (laughs) This was the flat belly diet. Um, even here, the 17-day diet, three-day diet, the abs diet, the acid-alkaline diet, anti-inflammatory diet, the body reset diet, the cookie diet. The cookie diet was pretty interesting. It, it, it had um, like nine small, uh, I think it was uh, 60 calorie cookies you can have all throughout the day and then you just have one meal. And, you know, there's websites about this. And the doctors swear by the science of it. The, the Dashian diet, the Dukin diet, the Eco Atkins diet, the Engine 2 diet, the Flexitarian diet, the Gluten-Free diet, the Glycemic Index diet. The, I mean, it goes, it goes on and on. And, and I'm sure you can come up with many, many more. All i got to do is look for, look for diets. And uh, you'll find not only diet methodology, but you also find a lot of diet companies ready and willing to sell you their products. That's kind of how, how it works. Well, did you know that diets are biblical? The Old Testament, God gives a diet for the Jewish people to follow. It it consists of foods you can eat and foods you cannot eat. And if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open up to Leviticus chapter 11. Over the past couple of months, we've been looking at this great book, talking about uh, just the the laws that Israel was to follow. The first five chapters talks about the the worshiper and the sacrifices he needs to bring to have his sins forgiven, be made right with God. The next five chapters, chapters 6 through 10, is more from the priests, how the priests are to offer those sacrifices, and then their ordination ceremonies. And then these next five chapters, 11 through 15, that we begin today, focus upon, upon clean and unclean practices. And we begin today with a, a dietary practice. Now, I want to read Leviticus 10 for you. It's a, it's a little long, but I want to read it for you. And, and as I do, I hear your assignment. Listen for clean and unclean. It's going to say clean and unclean. And when you hear those words, don't think sinful and unsinful or, or sinful and righteous. right? Clean and unclean, because that kind of misses the point. The whole point in Leviticus has been about approaching God in worship. And we need to be appropriate for that. And so clean and unclean means are you, are you capable, are you able to come and worship God in a way? You need to be clean, right? Forgiven of sin, certainly. But the priests, remember, they were ceremonially washed with water. And that was a symbol of ceremonial cleansing. And uh, this is important because if anything goes wrong, it means death. And, and for the Israelites, clean and unclean means simply practices that defile them. And possibly for a time. And the reason I know this isn't sin, per se, is because in chapter 12, which we'll look at next week, we, we find there about how, you, how a woman is unclean after she gives birth. Now, giving birth and the whole 
process involved in that is not sinful. Psalm 127 speaks about how children are a blessing of the Lord. But the process of birth is bloody and messy. And this blood is a symbol of life. And there's just some cleaning, cleansing process that needs to take place. And during the time of the cleansing, the Lord says, Leviticus 12:4, she shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until her days of purifying are, are complete. It's a matter that after you give birth, you've got a time. Whether it's 30 days or 60 days, depending upon whether it's a male or a female, you just wait for the time of purification to be cleansed. And so likewise, we'll see in chapters um, 13 and 14 with skin diseases and, and mold. It's just, it just makes you inappropriate uh, for entering into worship. And so these dietary laws also that certain foods make you clean, certain foods make you unclean. We're going to read about them. We also delve then into touching dead animal carcasses. That's what Leviticus 11 is about. <laughs> Real applicable for us today, right? All right, well, let's go. Leviticus 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall not touch their carcasses, for they are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters, as fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. And by the way, if your translation is a little bit different here, it's because we're not sure exactly which animals are being talked about here in about 40% of the cases. And much has just been, how it's been translated, we go down. The original readers certainly knew what it was, but if there's a little bit slight difference, it's because most of these are just, just a guess, but the idea is there. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, and the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have joined legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. And of them you may eat the locusts of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, the grasshopper of any kind, but all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. 
And by these you shall be unclean, whoever touches their carcasses. And right here we're going we're to shift from eating laws, more focusing on carcasses and dead animals. Um, whoever touches their carcasses, 24, shall be unclean until evening. And whoever carries any part of their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until evening. And whoever carries shall wash his clothes. And whoever carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean to you until evening. They are unclean. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it's an article of wood or a garment of skin or a sack. Any article that's used for any purpose, it must be put into water. It shall be unclean to you until the evening. Then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it. Any food that is that in it that could be eaten on which water comes, it shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drank from every vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or cistern holding water shall be clean. But whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it's unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies... Whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours and whatever may and has many feet. Any swarming things that swarms on the ground you shall not eat for they are detestable. You shall not make for... Make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms. You shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. And verse 44 starts with the key to the whole passage, which we'll get to. This little word for. This is why. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about the beast and the bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. All right, well, we've read the chapter, and uh, if this chapter teaches anything, it teaches this, that, that God is concerned with the little things in our life, with all matters of our life, even what we eat. The title of my message this morning is Eat to the Glory of God, taken from 1 Corinthians 10, 
verse 31. So then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. By way of outline, I have two points. What and why? Real simple. Just the questions that came to my mind. Like, like what exactly is this saying? And why is it saying it? We'll spend most of our time on the why. But the what... I think it's really easy. You want to try to make this kind of fun. Let's begin with the facts. Regarding land animals, you can eat those that part the hoof and choose the cud. So, if we look up here, we got one that parts the hoof, and the second one, we're going to zip through these, by the way, Rachel, really fast, and it chews the cud. That's, that's, he's chewing, okay? He's an emotion of, of chewing the cud, okay? So, a little, little quiz here. Camel, clean or unclean? Unclean, because it, go ahead, next one, it chews the cud, doesn't part the hoof. Is edible? No. All right, what about the next one? The pig. Unclean. We all know the pig is unclean, but what does it do? It parts the hoof all right. You can see his little hoof. Cute little guy there. Does he chew the cud? Doesn't chew the cud. Unclean. All right, what about the next one? We got a cow. Okay, clean? Clean, good. Okay, chews the cud, yes. Parts the hoof, yes. Edible, yes. Good for the land animals. Okay, now we go to the, the water animals. Fins and scales. That's, that's the requirement. Fins and scales. Got to have those things. Got to have those things. Okay, how about, how about this one? How about the dolphin? Unclean. Why? It's got the fin. No scales. Edible, no. How about the lobster? Unclean, right? Fins? No, scale, no, he's totally, he's not even close. He's, he's not there at all. Okay, how about the largemouth mouth bass, Andy? Totally clean, right? We got, we got both fins and we got scales. Absolutely edible. Okay, now, now when it comes to birds, there's no like um, requirement, alright? But basically, you can't, you can't eat these. The, up on the left is the, Eagle, help me. This one is the ostrich. That's a owl. That's a bat. That's a a, a what? A heron. That's a a hoopoo. A hoopoo. What is a hoopoo? <laughs> that is a hoopoo. Do you know anything that's uh, particularly interesting about the hoopoo? Who knows this? Who knows this? David, do you know this? You're smiling. Do you know this? Okay, that's an awesome hairdo. That's right. You know, he's rivaling SR, I think. There's something else special about the hoopoo. No, but probably, yeah, that's probably true, but it's not. He's got a mohawk, yep. His colors. It's the national bird of Israel. Small fact, you learn, you learn a lot here at Rock Valley Bible Church. We're just trying to, trying to fill it in. Okay, let's go to the insects. Okay, we got one. Above the line is not, oh, yeah, not edible. Okay, it, 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 can, it can walk on your mouth, okay? Well, maybe you can't touch it. I'm not exactly, you can't, no, that's, these are edible. Anyone tried crickets, grasshoppers recently? Have you had some? Yeah, like fried or something? Dried and salted and stuff? Sour cream and onion cricket mess. Okay, I've not, I've not tried one. Alright, now, verses 24 through 40, I'm just summarizing with one picture, and here it is. Yeah. Don't, 
don't touch a carcass. That's basically all, all that it says. Don't touch a carcass. It was clear. So if you find a tar- carcass on the side of the road, what do you do? If you can't touch it, what do you do? You, you get a stick, right? Or you move it or a shovel. You just, you just do something. You just stay away from it and you, you don't touch it. All right. That's, that's what. And, um, um, you know, how about we just go back one picture? Cause we're going to stay on this picture for a little bit. Now let's go back another picture. Let's look at the hoopoo for a while, and then, then we'll, we'll progress on. I just didn't want you looking at that picture, lest you think that that's a picture of me as I'm preaching here. All right, what we have seen, and now we're going to ask the big question, why? I mean, why this chapter? So I was reading through this chapter, maybe you're thinking, what is, what is this about? Why? Why the difference? Why are some clean? Why are some unclean? Why can you eat some of these animals and, and not another? And, and let me just say this, there are... A bunch of theories out there trying to figure this out. And, and I'm not sure that any of them makes full sense of the matters. In fact, the one that I'm putting forth, I didn't find in a commentary or read about, though it certainly was alluded to, but I think it makes the most sense. In some regards, um, the Israelites were a little bit like Adam and Eve. Remember in the garden, they were told not to eat that fruit. God says, from the day you eat of it, you shall die. But he didn't explain anything about what was special about that fruit or what was different about that fruit. He just says, don't eat it or you die. And so similarly, he tells the people of Israel, right, don't eat this or you'll be unclean. Not, not really telling us why this makes clean and why this makes unclean, but that's the question that I'm trying to address this morning. Why? Well, some have taken these entirely symbolic. So chewing the cud of a cow is, is like meditating on the Word of God like an allegorical interpretation or parting the hoof is like showing discernment between what's right and what's wrong. And so you can eat these animals. The problem with this view is that your interpretation basically is dependent upon your imagination as crazy it can get. That's, that's what, so why can we eat the eagle? Why can't we eat the eagle? Well, because maybe it'll give us a tendency to soar away from God. I just made that up. I didn't read that any place, but soar away from God. Or... Um, how about the fins of a fish keep us moving on a straight path? That's why we can, uh, even though it jiggles around, it still goes that way and it, it, that keeps us straight. Well, I mean, it's, it's all up to your wind. You can make them bad. I mean, like scales are symbolic of scales on your eyes. So why can we eat a fish? Or aren't parted hoofs like a double-minded man? Why can we eat those? I mean, it just, it just goes all over the place if you, if you take that view. Some are more pragmatic. Just to uh, reduce the number of animals you can eat, curb animal slaughter. And that may be high concern for PETA, the people for ethical treatment of animals, but hardly seems a concern for God. Animal sacrifices, the intent, remember from chapter 1, they're costly and they're wasteful. I mean, it just, it just costs a lot to sacrifice them. He commanded to sacrifice every morning and every evening. God isn't concerned, nowhere, the number of animals that we eat. Leviticus 11 puts no limit on anything. Well, another pragmatic reason might be that uh, a camel is far more useful as a beast of burden than it is as a source of food. And a pig consumes far more uh, food for itself than it gives it off in energy. That's pragmatic. But you try to put those things together. Well, what about the, um, the wild animals? You don't 
tend for them. You don't care for them. And yet, why can't you eat them? I mean, that seems strategic and helpful. Why not do that? I don't, I don't think the pragmatic view helps. Or the ascetic view. Basically, you eat those that are pleasant in appearance. Right? And, and so, like, that roadkill, if that meat comes before you, you say, oh, is this? Oh, yeah, that's the possum that, we, that died on the road. You'd be like, ugh. But I just say this. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Right? I mean, what's repulsive to one might be pleasing to another, like horse meat. We repulse at that in our culture. But in many countries across the world, horse meat is eaten. Five million horses are eaten across this planet every year, slaughtered for food. It's repulsive. So how, how can it be aesthetic? Maybe we've we got to have God's aesthetic. Maybe that's aesthetic, aesthetic to God. I, I don't know. I don't think that quite gets Some have taken a theological view. Like the animals prohibited are the animals that other nations, the pagan nations, use for sacrifice. Well, that doesn't quite work because other nations sacrifice plenty of bulls and goats, which are considered clean. It does, just doesn't match. Or even just think about Dagon, the fish god in Philistia. Now, if we can eat fish, but... They've been worshiping Dagon for years and years and years. That does, that, that's hard to math. Uh, others have taken a, what's called a morphological view, uh, which is a little bit like the aesthetic one. But in, in this one, it basically says that these are the animals that demonstrate normalcy. Or, or they're normal. There's something normal about a sheep, goat, or cow. Something not normal about a pig or camel. There's something normal about a typical fish that swims, but not normal about animals like crustaceans that just kind of live in the water. Well, there's something about that, but who's to decide what's normal and what's not normal? And, and it's all to say, well, these are normal because that's what this view says and that's, these aren't normal. Or, uh, I don't know. It's difficult. Most people, however, naturally fall on the hygienic view. That is, the animals on the do not eat list are are there because of health considerations, right? Pigs, trichinosis, or rabbits, tularemia, tularemia, you get from rabbits, or the, the dangerous uh, bacteria you can get from those critters that just sit on the bottom of pond scum, and maybe not so, so good to eat, and animals that prey on dead animals, what goes in comes out, and that maybe is not so good either. And for us health-conscious Americans, we can understand this. I mean, this, this seems to make sense, and there are are people, I'm sure, who follow the, the Hebrew laws. In fact, lots of Jews do. It's called kosher. But some do that for health reasons, saying that this is the healthy diet. And, and, and we might think that's only been around just recently, but John Calvin in the 1500s even argued against this view. Um, but this interpretation finds another confirmation when you talk about touching a dead animal. Right, in verses 24 through 40, right? The dead animals are harmful, so don't touch them. Right? You see a child is curious about a dead bird. They find it. We say, don't touch it, don't touch it, because we know it's harmful. And maybe God's protecting them. Health benefits. And um, I would say Leviticus 11, certainly there are some health benefits there. But the difficulty of that view is primarily this. Is that if it is health related, why then in the New Testament does God declare all foods clean? Because these laws are no, no longer binding on us. God used to care for the health of the Israelites, but He doesn't care for our health. Right? He used to say, like we say to our children, eat your fruits and vegetables. And now that Christ has come, He says, oh, have at it. Fruit Loops and ice cream, everybody around. <laughs> well, does God 
care about our health? He, he certainly does. I'm not sure that's the concern of Leviticus 11. And you remember when all foods were declared clean, Mark chapter 7, we read how some of the Pharisees noticed that Jesus and his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate, according to Hebrew traditions. And so they said to Jesus, why do you and your disciples not eat according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And so after some back and forth with the unteachable Pharisees, Jesus gathered the crowds and he said this, hear me all of you and understand, there's nothing outside a person that by going in can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So that's what he said. And then later, the disciples are confused. And they asked him, he said, he said, okay. Um, he says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? That's, it goes in the toilet. It's gone. So whatever you eat is gone in just a matter of hours. And then Mark adds, thus he declared all foods clean. Because in other words, it's not the outside which defile you. And he said, what comes out of a person, that's what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a man. In fact, that's what Jesus says. His emphasis isn't upon the outside in, it's on the inside out. It's your heart that comes out. So it's more, it, so what is it that defiles us today? It's, it's our media and it's what we read and it's what we see and it's what we talk about that, that actually enters our heart, that, that ruminates there, that goes, that expresses itself. How is it that the evil expresses itself? It expresses itself through, through the mouth and through what we say and through our feet and everything that we do. That's where defilement comes from. And, and the defilement doesn't come because, oh, I sinned because I had pasta today. It just doesn't, just doesn't work that way. But rather it's, I'm going along this thought process and I am pursuing sin in this way. And that Jesus declared all foods clean. And furthermore, it's not just Jesus, but the Apostle Paul then follows up rightly on that. He speaks about those who submit themselves to Levitical laws in these matters. And... Uh, he says in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, these sorts of regulations as food or drink potentially, or as we'll get to the festivals and the Sabbath celebrations, he says, these are just shadows. But he says the substance belongs to Christ. He says, let no one judge you for the shadows because the shadows aren't the important thing. It is the, the substance belongs to Christ. And the only way that he could say, that's not the point, but Christ is the point, is if people are saying, no, no, you need to keep this. You need to eat this. This is what you need to do. Yeah, at, at this point, I bring you back. Okay, we can jump over the roadkill to get my, my last picture here. There we go. Oh, beautiful. We just jumped to that. That's wonderful. Okay, remember this? I showed this to you in my introductory message on Leviticus. Leviticus is not written to Rock Valley Bible Church. The application, we don't go there. Rather, Leviticus is written to Israel some 3,000 years ago. And we try to figure out how it applies to Rock Valley Bible Church. First, we've got to understand this line. That's what we did in the what. And we're understanding the why, but the why comes to us as well. And there are some things, sacrifice, priests, eating laws, that stop and find their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to 
fulfill them. They've been fulfilled in Jesus. Therefore, the sacrifices, priests, eating laws stop at the cross and don't go through to us. It's like a big sieve. But there's this principle that you shall be holy for I am holy does apply to us. So it's tricky to know what stops and what doesn't stop. But we do know from Jesus in Mark chapter 7 that these eating laws stop. We know from Colossians chapter 2 these eating um, laws stop. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 4, um, Paul is talking about these people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. In other words, it's, the, it's not the foods that are bad and people are saying, no, 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 you need to abstain from these foods. Paul says, no, in Christ Jesus, it's all there, but it's sanctified as we give our thanks to God. That's why we pray before we eat. We express our thanks to God and that sanctifies our food and it's made holy. Now, that's not to say that it's wrong to keep a Hebrew diet. Right? Many people keep a kosher diet. Kosher is just a Hebrew word for fit, proper, correct. They keep a, a fit. They, they keep a proper diet, according to Leviticus 11. I have no problem with a Jew eating kosher. It's their heritage, their culture. And, and I would say this. That's not the big deal. If you want to win a Jew... Don't invite them to a pig roast. Right? Bend and show them Jesus and show that the eating law is not the big things, but oftentimes they can focus on that. Furthermore, I have no problem with any of you eating a kosher diet. I don't know if any of you do or not, but I have zero problem with that. If that's the sort of food you want to eat, have at it. But here comes the warning. And this is a warning. If you keep the kosher laws, just be prepared to become judgmental regarding other people, what they eat. You know, even as we have, you know, whatever, been Weight Watchers and tried to trim our, our, uh, um, our, our food, what we normally eat. I mean, like, oh, I can easily become judgmental of other people who heap their ice cream and go like, that's really bad for you. Right? I, it's just something where you come to a conviction, you're going to take that and you're going to easily push that on other people. And so likewise, you eat this way. That's fine, but that's the very thing that Paul's prohibiting in Colossians 2. Eating or drinking or keeping a festival are just pictures. They're just shadows to point us to Jesus. So don't get sucked too much in the shadow and you miss the substance that you start casting judgment upon others who have the shadow. But because here's what, here's what happens. It, that can easily, you say, I'm going to keep a Hebrew diet. I'm going to eat kosher. That's okay. But pretty soon that becomes, well, you, you start thinking about, well, um, that's in the Bible. That's what God preferred for Israel. And that's, I think, what is a biblical stance. And then, and then it gets raised from an optional thing to a biblical thing. It's a, a biblical thing to a convictional thing that you have in your heart. And you say, this is what it's got to be. And then pretty soon you'll get judgmentalists, all legalists do. That's why you find legalists as very judgmental upon other people. And you pity those who are living in a different standard. But I just say this, that if you... Cast that, you'll be judged by the same standard with which you judge. Okay, I don't have any problems if you eat kosher food. Yeah, I don't have any problems with this at all. But I do have problems with the Seventh-day Adventists. It's kind of interesting here. You think about it. 
They strive to keep the law. That's why they worship on the seventh day. They worship on Saturday. But not only worship on Saturday, but they also keep the eating laws. I remember we as a church years ago thought about renting a seventh day Adventist church and uh, talked about monthly potluck. And they said uh, fellowship dinner. I mean, and um, what they said was that, uh, well, you, you need to make sure that you cook things in, a, in the right way. And in order for us to do that, we would have had to cook things kosher in the building, like <laughs> No, no pork theme. <laughs> if we're in the Seventh Day Adventist, Karen, that's just not gonna not gonna work because they they keep that, and, and that's that's okay. But I have problems because here you have believers in Christ seeking still to follow the law, seeking as a body to follow the law. If you're part of that corporate body, you're gonna submit yourself to the law, and that's that's okay. But it's it's getting really close. I mean, I applaud their intent. They profess to be leaders in Christ, and, and no doubt many of them are in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, but they're going down the same path that the early church went down that says, I, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you worship on the seventh day, you cannot be saved. In fact, that is Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. I pull that from... Uh, Romans, thir- uh, sorry, Revelation 13, talking about keeping the commandments of God, the fourth commandments, to worship on the seventh day. And if you're not doing that, well, then you're outside the commandments of God. That's official Seventh-day Adventist teaching. So you see how they, they take their Sabbath day and they press that upon other people and say, well, you're disobedient to God. Even though Paul says in Colossians 2 that don't let no one judge you regarding the Sabbath day. Because there's been the rest that's been fulfilled in Christ. And so likewise, these eating laws, they're, they're right on the edge of saying you have to keep these in order to be a sanctified Christian, like you've got to be circumcised. And, and I, I applaud the attempt, but they, they miss, they miss the, the glory of Christ because it says that Christ is the end of a law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In a culture of law-keeping, it's difficult to understand fully that Christ has fulfilled all of that. And it's just a warning to them. So let's think about this diet. Some say, like any diet, it must be hard to keep. Isn't that why people don't keep their diets? Because it's hard to keep. They want their cookies and ice cream rather than, than their diets. But you know what? It's not. A kosher diet's really not very difficult to eat, to keep. Um, because think about it. If you, if you keep just everything in your house as kosher, you can't go wrong. Because you can't go nibbling, right, on that beetle. Because that beetle's not in your closet. Right? And you can't accidentally have that ham, right? You can't put a ham on your sandwich. It's a ham, it's not even in your house. That's 99% of eating kosher. The rest applies to like certain things. Like just make sure when you eat your vegetables, you're looking for bugs because bugs are unclean. So you've got to make sure there's no bugs in your broccoli. Or don't mix your meat and your milk. Okay, one Jewish person was very insightful. He said this, Actually, keeping kosher is not particularly difficult in and of itself, what makes it difficult to keep kosher is the fact that the rest of the world does not do so. The basic underlying rules are fairly simple. If you buy your meat at a kosher butcher and, and buy only kosher certified project, products at the market, then the only thing you need to think about is the separation of meat and dairy. Keeping kosher only becomes difficult when you try to eat in a non-kosher restaurant or at the home of a person who does not keep kosher. In these situations, your lack of knowledge about your host's ingredients and food preparation techniques make it very difficult to keep kosher. That's why when you're on a diet, you go out to eat, it's very difficult 
to keep your diet because you don't know exactly what's there. In a controlled environment, it's easy. It's hard when you go out into a foreign place. But here's, here's the sentence that I want you to catch. This, this person says this, this Jew. Some commentators have pointed out, however, that this may well have been the part of what God had in mind to make it more difficult for us to socialize with those who do not share religion. And we're getting to the point that I believe the why is about. Some commentators have pointed out, and again I quote, that this may well have been part of what God had in mind to make it more difficult for us to socialize with those who do not share our religion. And I think perhaps this, far more than all the other explanations, explain the reason for these laws. And I say this because of that little word, verse 44, because, here's why these things are clean and unclean, for, or because, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with with any swarming thing that crawls the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And I think in many ways, these are the most important verses in the entire chapter. Right? Eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this, okay, stay away from this. Why? Because I'm holy and you shall be holy. I have that teaching screen right there, right? You shall be holy, right? And, and some is, I, I tried this, I caught a phrase on Leviticus it's, it's because I'm holy, but that's too long. You shall be holy for I am holy. But you should catch this. You shall be holy. We shall be like God. So what does holy mean? Well, holiness means cleanliness, purity. It's, it's the idea that the, the, the clean and pure things are often set aside. Right? The, the nice china is set away in the, the china set. The, the pure surgeon in the operating room is set apart and nobody's going to touch him. And so purity comes with it, this separateness, this distinctness that we might be different. And, and certainly God is, is separate and distinct from us. And, but He is holy and, and pure and righteous. And so when, the, when they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, He's not just saying, clean, clean, clean is God. He's saying, Clean, majestic, separated, lofty, high, exalted is God. And so likewise, that there is this, this separation that the people of God need to be from the world, that we need to be different and distinct. That's what he was teaching about the people of Israel. And of course, this does come straight through to us today. First Peter 1.16, a New Testament command, you shall be holy for I am holy. And that way we should be like God. In fact, here's something interesting. Did you notice that the foods we can eat are the very foods that we can sacrifice? Bulls, goats, lambs. Didn't mention, but didn't say pigeons, turtle doves. Right? In other words, we eat what God eats, if you will. We are like Him. And thus, we become different from the world. As this Jewish person said, I don't even know if it's a man or a woman, but it's, it's not a Jew, is, is what this website said. Maybe God has designed this to make it more difficult for to socialize with those who don't share our religion. Keep us apart. Keep us separated. And so it may well be that that's the major purpose why these eating laws are, to, to keep us separated away from the, the Gentiles. And you know that was, a, that was a, a difficult issue anyway. When they went into the land, they started intermarrying and started mixing and mingling over and against God's attempt to keep them separate because he wanted to keep a, a pure nation for himself. But, but here's why I say this also, is because right here is where 
we see the, the focal point of God's change in His salvation plan from the people of Israel and, and those from the outside who proselytized became Jews to be like God, to be, uh, have access to God. Now, now it's out to the world. It's to the Gentiles. And that process came about through the process of food. So we're done with Leviticus. So let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. This point in church history, the gospel has been primarily to the Jews. Now, certainly there's exceptions to that. Like the Ethiopian eunuch uh, is an exception to that rule. Um, but mostly it's the focus of, um, of in the synagogues. In the synagogues. But right now, God is going to shatter that notion that it's just the Jews. Chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known as the Italian court hort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. He was a godly man, but he was a Gentile. He was outside the people of God in an official way, a God-fearing Gentile. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers... And your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. He's a righteous man. He's praying, but he's, he's still this Roman. So he's out, outside. But he, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. And the idea is here, he didn't know about Simon Peter before, but he identified who he is and where he stayed. Verse 6, he's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel spoke to him and departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. Having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so this happened first, now it's coming, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And when he became hungry and wanted something to eat, here's the diet theme coming, the food thing, and while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being led down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, all kinds, clean and unclean. And the reptiles aren't clean either. We, we read about that in Leviticus 11 and all the birds of the air. Maybe the hoopoe is there as well. We don't we don't know. But there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happens, happened three times and the thing was taken up into heaven. It's a familiar story. I think we understand what's happening. But Peter here is being confronted with something he's never eaten before. He's kept kosher all his life. And now there's a pig on this blanket. And he's saying, or the sheet, and he's saying, eat this, Peter. He says he doesn't even know what that tastes like. It's never, it's never come close. He says, I'm not going to do that. And that's against all cultures of his day. He rightly resisted. But God said, no, this is important. I've called it clean. Don't consider it common. In other words, I, I've made all foods clean. And so, Peter, if you look in verse 17, was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision he had seen might mean. And to make a long story short, as he's confused, at that very moment, there's a knock on the door. 
these men from Cornelius explain the vision and they request that he come to Caesarea to the home of, of Cornelius. And Peter said, well, I got this vision. They heard of me. They didn't know I'm at Simon the Tanner's house. And so I'll just, okay, I'll go. And so he went. And then uh, as he went, the understanding of the vision became clear to him. And he said in verse 28, he said this. You yourselves know, these Gentiles, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit the house of another nation because God had kept them separate. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Wait a minute, Peter. He's not talking about people. But what was he talking about? He's talking about food, but this transfers into people, right? If, if the food is common, right? If food is clean, I can eat and be with other people and I ought not to consider them unclean as defiling to me, he says. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Verse 29, and when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And so he explained the vision and everything. And uh, he preached the gospel to Cornelius and his relatives and his close friends. And if you look through his message, you see he preached the gospel message, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then he said this, as Jesus rose, he appeared to us, verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus, he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. They told him, preach, Jesus is the judge. He's coming to judge the world because the prophets all testify that there's forgiveness in Jesus. By the way, this is mind blowing a little bit. If you think the Old Testament wrath and New Testament love, here we have the New Testament wrath, Jesus coming as judge and the Old Testament love prophesying of forgiveness. But that's a, a side point. But the message of Christ risen, believe in him, forgiveness of sins, and Cornelius, his relatives and close friends all believe, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They began speaking in tongues just like at Pentecost. I assume that's known languages, which they didn't know before, but others could translate for them. And they were baptized. And this caused a stir among the Jews. Look at chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them? You're not kosher anymore. You're not unclean. Why'd you do that? And he was facing all these accusations. And Peter, from verse 4 and following, he basically said, okay, well, let me tell you my story. This is, this is what happened. And the conclusion then of all comes to verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God's salvation plan now is extending to the world. His dealings with Cornelius and Peter, obviously, obviously miraculous. God moving in the heart of Cornelius first. God timing it with Peter as he has this trance. These men come right at the same time. He goes back. He shows them. He preaches. Tongues come, or Fire comes for the Holy Spirit comes with tongues. And they're baptized, they believe. That's all a work of God. And it is, they recognized, it was God who granted repentance to the Gentiles that leads to life. And notice how it's done. It's done through abolishing the food laws. 
Just as no longer any unclean foods anymore, neither are the unclean people anymore. The gospel is for all who believe. Revelation 5, at the throne of Christ will be men from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. That's why we need to get the gospel out because all those tribes will be represented at the throne. They need to hear. Now, before you think that God is done with diets, think again because there's a Christian diet. There's a Christian diet. What are you talking about? There is. Trust me. John chapter 6. Here is the, the Christian diet. This chapter is filled with many of the hard sayings of Jesus. We're going to go right in the middle. I'm going to summarize this. We're going to segue into the, the Lord's Supper. And I think you'll, you'll see why. How appropriate for us today. So we're talking about food and diet to then celebrate the Lord's Supper. Verse 35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Do you see the diet? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And these are hard sayings because Jesus said, I, I said to you, you've seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. They grumbled at that, verse 41. And he said, I'm the bread of life coming down from heaven. And Jesus said, verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come unless the Father sent me draws him. I will raise him up on that last day. And then he continues, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread that comes out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Do you catch the Christian diet? What do we need to eat? Eat Christ. Eat the bread of life. He continues on. The Jews disputed, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Like, that's weird. How can he... like? We're not cannibals, are we? How can this be? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I'm telling you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in Me. Whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For My flesh is true food, and My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me, and I in him. As the Father sent Me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on Me... He also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and who died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. <laughs> and the disciples got and they said, this is a hard saying. Verse 60. And so Jesus even talks to them. He says, verse 61, do you take offense at this? Then what if you're to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to your spirit and life. So what he's talking about here is that, yes, I'm talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, but it's all a metaphor is what he's talking about. He says it's not physically his, his flesh you have to eat. It's not physically his blood you need to drink. There's not enough of that to go around. But he's saying that eating of him is symbolic of taking him in and absorbing him just like we would at a dinner table. That's exactly the picture of the Lord's Supper. And I think this whole spiritual meaning carries over where he, he takes up the bread and he says, this is my body. 
And, and, and for those who say, oh, this is the actual body that's transubstantiated into the actual body of Jesus, he'd say, no, these words are spiritual. Do you not understand them? You need to eat of me. You need to drink of me. And of course, these foreshadow the cross of what he was going to do as he took that cup and he said, this cup is the covenant of my blood. You drink this and remember to me because it's the blood upon the cross that shed for your sins according to the sacrifices of Leviticus 1 through 5, which is foreshadow and teach of Jesus. So this morning we're going to celebrate the, the Christian diet. We're going to eat the bread and we're going to drink drink of the cup. And you understand how, how this works. Trust there's a time of examination, as Paul tells us to, is to see if we're eating and and drinking wordly means eating and drinking in a believing manner. So let's let's bow your heads right now and just examine your hearts. We think about this whole matter about Jesus um, and God being interested in, in what we eat. And that all that we do, whether we eat or drink, we're to do that to the glory of God. And so even as we eat and drink here of the, the Lord's Supper, we're eating and drinking to the glory of God. I encourage you now to just examine your hearts. As Paul says, let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. It's basically professing that I'm a believer by eating and drinking and yet not really being a believer. But going through the motions, going through a show. Maybe it's holding unconfessed sin. Maybe things are not right between you and God. Make them right right now. Just cry out to God. Say, God, I've stumbled yet again and I, I need you. I need your help. And He is our help and our shield. We've been memorizing some of us the fighter verses past couple of weeks, thinking about it. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And He's the one who keeps us and guards us. He won't slumber or sleep. He is our helper. He's the shade on our right hand. He will help us by day. He'll protect us from the sun and the moon and the dangers that come around. But He is our refuge. And so I would encourage you to seek refuge in Him where only refuge can be found. And celebrate the suffer. Celebrate that this means that that Christ died for you. This is a celebration of everything that happened on the cross. As He Himself who knew no sin became sin for us. And so Lord, I would pray as we celebrate the supper together, I pray it would be a time of great communion with You, a time of great rejoicing in You, a time of rejoicing in the cross that You have made all foods clean. We no longer are bound to what it is that we eat or we don't eat because our righteousness with You isn't defined by being part of a nation of Israel. But now the gospel has gone to the uttermost parts of the world. Our, uh, our standing with you is by faith in Jesus. It's the only way we come. So help us, O Lord, in these things. Be with us and bless us as we celebrate this meal together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.